Les Edgerton is a writer. He is also a writing mentor, published author, trauma survivor, father, husband, and human being with a rich and complex past. As someone capable of preventing and inflicting harm with equal intensity, Les has spent time in the Navy as a cryptographer and in prison for burglary. He has been a bystander, perpetrator, victim, and astute observer who has dealt with the evil side of the human condition and lived to tell the story. For more about Les, I recommend reading his memoir, Adrenaline Junkie. It is one of the most fast-paced, visceral books I've read, and I couldn't recommend it enough. This episode, however, is about the true spirit and gift that runs through this incredible writer and writing coach. Because that's what Les is. You know, I'm nervous, curious, excited and moved by the idea of this conversation. I don't know what will come up. I'm no expert reader or writer either. But it's going to be a ride. And I'd love for you to buckle in. Enjoy this conversation with the marvelous enigma that is Les Edgerton. Let's go. One life, D- different roads, different roads. Different roads. one finale. What's this malarkey about anyway? Well, here's the deal. No one has the game figured out, and everyone's slicing the pie their own way. Welcome to the Maximum Project, where we find out how you can hack it the way you were meant to. Step into the unknown with confidence as we speak to all sorts to get the inside scoop on what makes them tick. Chats, chats. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Maximum Project. Today we have a very special guest in Les Edgerton. Um, you would have heard a bit more about him in the intro, but honestly, I can't cover enough about him in a short bio. But uh, welcome to the show, Les. Hi, thank you, Ardef. Uh, Adarsh, I'm sorry. Your name is throwing me. Now I've got it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not Jim or Bob or Sue, Sue Ellen, so I'm not familiar true? with it. Is this true? I'm up, I, yeah, you... I apologize for my voice. Well, that's okay. I think uh, your thoughts have a lot more to offer at this point, so that's perfectly <laughs> we'll okay. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we've, we've talked briefly. I, I met you when I found your writing boot camp. And I was instantly fascinated by your story. So I wanted to use this conversation to really explore some of the common perceptions and misconceptions around being a creative writer. So let's go. <laughs> just like your spirit, I'm going to get right into it. All right. Lesson, what is writing and what is creative writing? Wow. <laughs> I've never been asked that. That's really odd, too, because it would seem to be a a good question, but <laughs> what is writing? Man, I, I'm not even sure how to answer that. Uh, it's just, it's, to me, it's like breathing. It's just what you do. <clears throat> um, it's, a, it's how you communicate, how you, jeez, uh, you start with a hard one. Start with an easy one. Okay. <laughs> Why is writing not typing? Oh, oh. I see where you're coming from now. You mean like uh, uh, what's his, what's his face? The guy at Kerouac, Truman Capote said about him. He said that's not writing; that's typing, because yeah. that's kind of what he did. He 
there's not a lot of thought to that kind of writing, in my opinion. I I kind of agree with Capote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of people out there that really are not writing. They're just, they're typing. They're filling up space, and they're throwing a lot of crap in there that they think others will be as stupid as they are and buy. And frequently, and, that that might even be the case in some cases. Oh, that that's definitely the case. If you uh, if you trust bestseller list, look at who buys bestsellers, and it'll it's scary. Mm-hmm. Some of those people are actually running governments. Oh, right. <laughs> So what separates the writers from the typists? Yes. Uh, I think intelligence for one thing. Mm-hmm. And not not intelligence is different than being smart or clever. It's 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 deeper, it's it's more intuitive, it's uh I'm gonna get in over my head now, but uh it it's basically it's intelligent. And not everything you read is intelligent. A lot of mm-hmm. it sounds smart, but it really isn't. Um, you have to pull it out of me a little bit more. Oh, oh yeah, of course, of course. No, that's fine. Uh, I'm just going to, whenever you pause, I'm going to jump in, but I tend to let yeah, my guests have the stage. So, yeah, that's very fair. I think what I want to do, and honestly, my, my, not only my skill, but my persistence lies in getting deeper and deeper into what we already think. So in intelligence, I, I get that now. So people are writing, people are typing. There are people who are conveying thought, meaning in a structure, and there are people just filling up space. So what is that intelligence? Uh, okay, I'm going to go back because I've arrived at a better answer. Okay. To me, good writing is entertain is entertainment. You're entertaining mm-hmm. somebody. You're saying something of interest, something of value to right. that person. And if you're not doing that, who cares? Yeah, doesn't matter. But it's it's like a, a fiction. I I specialize in fiction. I do write nonfiction, but fiction's what I teach and what I live. Mm-hmm. But uh, fiction. There's there's two ways you can affect a reader in fiction. One is through emotions, and one is through the intellect. The only one that matters are emotions. Hmm. The only one. Nonfiction is where, if you want to go to figure out something or discover something, that's. I mean, you do do that in fiction, but that's not the purpose of fiction. The purpose of fiction, in my opinion, is to entertain. Purpose of fiction is to entertain. I think that that, that is quite specific. And what I find exciting about the way you approach your craft is creating emotion takes intelligence. Oddly enough, the author can't be feeling things. I feel I'm just drawing on some of the things we've talked about and what mm-hmm. I've seen you say. I feel the people filling up space and please draw, you know, call me out if I'm uh, you know, chatting nonsense. But <laughs> I think the people filling up space are feeling and then documenting their feeling. <laughs> as opposed to thinking about how to create feeling in the reader. And I think that disconnect perhaps creates a stream of consciousness that fills up space as opposed to writing that seeks to create an experience. Uh, Adarsh, that's absolutely brilliant. Okay. I think you nailed it. Understood. So I don't know if this matters to your viewer, but your picture to me has gone faded. It's it really blurry. Oh, that's okay. It, I think, it doesn't uh, matter to me. It doesn't matter because it's just going to be audio for them. So we're okay. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. The video is for us. <laughs> Good. 
Because if anybody saw my face, they'd probably turn it right off. Uh, I, I, I'd, I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be questioning that thought, to be honest. With yeah, you. It's, it's, it's not what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, you know, I, I want to get further into it. So now here's the other thing, right? When you start in your craft, I mean, you read Dostoevsky before the age of 12. So we're not talking about a casual person at this point. But now, because of social media and the internet, everyone has access to a voice. Someone said to me once that opinions are like our souls. Everyone's got one, but not everyone needs to show it all the time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately or otherwise, we are in a position today where everyone has that voice. So here's my other question for the writing coach and writer. Should everyone write? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's their right. If they want to write, it doesn't mean everybody needs to read it and probably shouldn't. Most stuff shouldn't be read. Most stuff is a waste of time on both sides. Yeah, and I feel uh, that... Uh, sorry, go on. No, I'm sorry. It, it takes, I think, to me, it takes a certain amount of genius to write well. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that... Yeah, earlier you said something about can writing be taught. Yes, writing can, to a certain degree, it can be taught. But great writing, I don't think, can be taught. Barry Bonds is a very famous baseball player, and he's—I've got a—I've got it in one of my uh, blogs, blog posts. What he said, and I think it applies to any endeavor like writing. A reporter picked out a home run he hit in a game, and said, asked him to show him how he did that. And he mm -hmm. said, "No, it'd be a waste of time because you can't do it. Only I can do that, and that's the way great writing is." Uh, Dostoevsky can't teach somebody how to write like him. There's no way. There's only one Dostoevsky. There's a lot of pretenders, possibly, but they, you can't teach what he did. Uh, just like Barry Bond said, it'd be a waste of both of our time if I'm trying to tell you how I hit that because you can't do it. There are certain things pe some people cannot do. That's just the way it is. That's life. Get over it. Yeah. You know, I feel with physical endeavors or even with things that involve money, that yep. limitation is something people accept. I'm not six foot five. I can't dunk a basketball. But because yep. with writing, the physicality involved is quite limited. Um, unless, of course, you know, God bless their souls, if a typing becomes an athletic event. Um, uh, it, it is accessible to everyone, right? And uh, mm -hmm. the question about whether writing is innate is a valuable one. I think a friend of mine brought to my notice that Andilla said that there are three kinds of writers, bad, good, and great. With enough training, yeah. you can take a bad to a good, but you can never take sure. a bad to a great. Exactly. I perfectly say. Uh, it's like uh, it's like genres. That's another similar thing. Nabokov, I believe what Nabokov believed about genres is that there are only two genres. That's good writing and bad writing. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I, I was reading a bit of John McPhee. I don't know if you what you think of him, but levels of the game. Uh, I'm is sorry, who? John McPhee. <laughs> oh yeah, John. Yeah, the yeah the nature guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he wrote a yeah. book on Arthur Ashe's tennis match called "The Levels of the Game," and I thought that was a piece of nonfiction writing that was paced like fiction and stunningly written. Yeah, I I love John McPhee. I think he's one probably our two best nonfiction writers ever. Oh, him and okay. uh, him and um, oh God, he's dead now from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, I I have Alzheimer's, so I keep forgetting names and stuff. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. If it comes to you later, we can include that in the notes. Yeah. Yeah. So now I want Harrison, to talk to you. 
Jim Harrison. Harrison. Jim Harrison. John. I couldn't order that. Ian McPhee are in my of uh, the people I've read are our two best contemporary fiction writers or nonfiction writers. Nonfiction writers. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so well, we'll have uh, occasional pauses because, you know, I'm not a <laughs> professional broadcaster, so if that's okay. Sure. Uh, I want to I ask you, Les, so you said that a couple, it's so many jumping off points with you because, you know, make no mistake to whoever's listening to this, we're speaking with a bona fide master uh, in terms of sheer commitment. Uh, if you, even if you take away all the ability in terms of sheer commitment and diligence, we're speaking with someone you'd be lucky to speak with. So to anyone whose ears this reaches. You're in the presence of... You give uh, me a lot to live up to. <laughs> I think you already have, Les, from where I'm sitting. Well, thank you. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, no time to be modest or falsely modest. This is true. This is true. Also, if I'm trying to have you as a mentor, I might as well uh, do in sycophancy <laughs> what I can't in skill. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, we talked about... You said, okay, some not everyone can write um, in terms of being able to write well. Everyone can write in terms of having the ability and not everything should be read. On one level, knowing what you should do and shouldn't do presupposes a certain level of self-awareness. So let's say I'm a beginner writer and I've written a few things, a few short stories here, a few poems here, a couple of likes on Instagram. How do I go about establishing whether I'm gifted or not gifted? I think you, you're going to know one way or the other, I, I really do. Everybody has doubt. Almost everybody has doubts. Uh, in, in fact, I wrote stuff when I was twelve and thirteen. My last novel I wrote when I was twelve and thirteen. I wrote two different short stories and just put them together. But uh, I couldn't get them published at that time. I didn't know how to get published, mm -hmm. and it, it was a whole different world in literature at that time. We didn't have the internet, GNAT. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> At that time, so everything had to be done via snail mail. There were no, it's it's like short stories. There's no, not much value to short stories for a publisher. There's no money in them. Poetry, there's right. no money yeah. in it unless you're one of the giants. Uh, but uh, the, the the lit magazines were out, were in print, and for the most part, they were excellent. Today, there's a bunch of garbage on the internet. Anybody can get crap published. There's no validation anymore. Uh, it. It's like um, there's a lot of luck in getting published, for one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not always because it's it's not true that if you write something great, somebody will find it eventually and publish it. That is just not true. It's a bunch of crap. They mm -hmm. used to tell out about manuscripts or about screenplays in Hollywood. If you write a great screenplay and throw it out the window of a car, somebody will find it and make it. That's such horse crap. It's It mm -hmm. takes luck. I'll give you an example. My my first novel, it was published. I wrote most of it when I was 17 and 18. And uh, I sent it to the, the 87th person that picked it up. 87th publisher picked it up was the one that published it. And I was going alphabetically through the listing of, of, of publishers. Mm -hmm. So I told you I'd been at it a long time. In fact, in those days, today, submitting is easy. You click on a button and it goes electronically. In those mm -hmm. days, we didn't have that. You had to send it via snail mail, and you not only had to pay the postage to the publisher or agent or whoever, you had to pay the return postage back if you sent a manuscript. So oh. back in the uh, 60s, 70s and everything, I was spending 20 to $30 on a manuscript to send it out and get it back. 
when I, we didn't have that, we didn't have food money a lot of times. But my, my wife was fantastic. She let me do, she knew I was going to do it regardless. But she gave me her blessing and went along with it. Uh, and I was at my 87th. I had made my mind up after I got to 100. I was going to, I was not going to send it out anymore unless I rewrote it. Okay. I got to 87. Mm-hmm. So I was close. And it went to the University of North Texas Press. And I was going alphabetically. So I was in the U's. There's not a lot after that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I got published, I had two things happen shortly before that. A week before I sent it to that particular, pr- to the university, I was invited to be in a workshop with, um, I can't think of her name now. She's, uh, um, oh God, Michael Chevron's agent, uh, Mary Evans. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote Mysteries of Pittsburgh and a bunch of other stuff. And she had me in workshop with that manuscript. And she took me aside and she said, Les, you're having trouble getting this published, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, Michael had the same problem with Mysteries of Pittsburgh, could not get it published. And right. I suggested he make it a frame story. And I didn't know what a frame story was at the time. And she explained, she said, the problem with his book and your book is your protagonist is a young teenage boy. I said, yeah. Mm. She said, their publishers look at it as a YA. And I said, no, it's not a YA any more than, than any other good book with a young protagonist says. And she says, I know that and you know that publishers aren't that smart. And she was a very astute agent. She is a very astute agent. She understood that publishers are just people. They It's just like agents. They could be selling shoes. And they'd right. probably be better at it. But anyway, uh, she said, the problem is they're seeing it as a YA because of the age of the protagonist. And mm-hmm. she said, not only that, they're seeing it as a YA for a bo- for boys. And she said, boys are the single worst demographic in publishing. They do not read. She said they're the single best demographic in movies because they go to movies oh, and they'll see the same movie six times, but they don't read as a group. And she said, so I told uh, Michael to do the same thing. I'm suggesting to you that you turn this into a frame story. And all that meant was she said, begin the book with a new chapter where it's a guy in old age looking back. And at the very end, write a chapter where he comes back. Then publishers will read that and think, oh, it's an adult story. They're that mm. simple minded. They really are. And I'm talking about good publishers. It's so, so-called good publishers. I'm not sure if there are any. Uh, there's no more Maxwell Perkins in, around anymore, I don't think. Uh, anyway, uh, so I did that. And I sent it. And the, the, the first person that got it was the University of North Texas Press. Mm-hmm. Well, as luck, another piece of luck, I had ended up at the top of the pile. Her secretary brought in the publisher, Fran Vick, and put it on her desk. Well, they had never published nonfiction. I did not know that. I didn't read their, their listing that carefully, and I assume they did. They had never published fiction, never considered it. As it happened, another piece of luck, the, uh, the agent brought her coffee in and spilled it. She had to go make another pot. So while she's waiting for her coffee, Fran picked up, idly picked up the first manuscript, which happened to be mine. And because I had changed the first chapter, mm-hmm. the the, uh, the the name of the setting came up. It was Freeport, Texas, where I grew up and worked set. As it turns out, that editor was from Freeport, Texas. Oh. That's how luck plays in. There's all kinds of luck went into this particular agent picking up this thing, which she would not have a week before. Would not have even looked at it. If it had been a day before and they hadn't spilled coffee, she wouldn't have picked it up to begin with. Okay. And as she read it and as she read and she got in, she said I couldn't put it down once I started reading it. Well, a lot of times they don't read things. Most of them don't. 
This time she did because all these things had happened before. So I got lucky. As it turned out, it was it almost won the uh, the uh, Violent Crown Book Award, which is a prestigious award. It got a special citation from them, which that's another story. It was I went. They paid my way to the first annual Texas Book Festival, which is an mm-hmm. annual thing now. It goes a big deal every year. And I sat at the table with Laura Bush, Liz Carpenter, a whole bunch of heavyweights. And uh, that's when Laura Bush's husband, was George, was governor. Is before everybody knew what a big dumbass he was. But anyway, that's another story. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Robert Waller was her guest, right, guest author. And he was supposed to award me the, my award. Mm-hmm. And I, I told the president of the thing, I said, I won't take it from him because I don't want to get his DNA on mine. Actually, there was no DNA then. I just said his skin cells or something, his writing job, because <laughs> I can't wash that crap off, that kind of bad writing off. I could wash forever. And she laughed and she said, okay, I'll have uh, Laura Bush give it to you, which is what happened. Right. Anyway, I, I'm, I know I'm going astray, but I'm almost done with this particular story. Anyway, Robert Waller's the guy who wrote Bridges of Madison County. It's a thinly disguised romance novel. It's a piece of crap, I think. Anyway, and I, I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan, and I almost lost it when he uh, appeared in it. But anyway, I thought it was a piece of dreck, and I, I had no respect for his writing at all. Mm-hmm. So she said, okay, I'll, so Laura Bush presented it to me. On the way back to the Omni Hotel where they put me up, uh, she told me, she says, the reason they got Robert Waller was the older ladies in their 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 group, their state writing group, wanted him because they're a bunch of old, you know, they're they're not very literate to be honest, and uh, they wanted him, so they outvoted us younger ones who wanted someone that could actually write. So they got him, but anyway, at the very end, when it's all done, he was supposed to come out and deliver a talk on writing. Instead, he's got ten thousand writers in this ballroom, this huge ballroom, at this bank building. And he walks out in cowboy gear, yippee-yay-yo gear, sparkly stuff and cowboy hat and all this crap, and his band of troubadours with guitars and shit, and they proceeded to, to sing the songs he wrote. 10,000 people got up and left within five minutes. Oh. They were so pissed. And so that was, that's my Robert Waller. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other dream I've had, I turned him down. The other dream I have is somehow Oprah picks me for a book club, and I'll turn her down. Somebody's already done it, so damn, I don't get that distinction. But mm-hmm. I would love to, because she didn't even read the damn book. She's got a committee out reading them. And she yeah. picks the same kind of syrupy crap that all the time. I don't want to be part of that kind that kind of stuff. Th- those, to me, are not values at all. Anyway, sorry about that long-winded deal. No, I, I think that digression is valuable. Because for me, I mean, yes, on the face of it, it is a story, and there's layering, and there's humor. But it shows for me someone who cares about writing. Because that's where the, you know, I think emotions are so valuable because anger shows you what you care about and disgust shows you what threatens your survival. And I feel like you have both of those feelings towards bad writing, which brings me to my next question, you know, which is when did you realize that you could write and why do you like writing? Uh, At a very early age, when I was four or five, I don't remember which because my memory is kind of bad at that age. (laughs) <laughs> my mother was reading a story to me, and I kept on reading. Well, she'd read it to me before, and I kind of memorized the shapes of words. But mm-hmm. from that, she taught me to read, taught me phonics and everything. I think I was four and a half. Anyway, the first book I read on my own, I thought I could write a better one. At that time, I couldn't, but now I can. But I had a lot of confidence to begin with, because to me, it 
it all made sense. Good writing just makes sense. There's a structure to it. I could see clearly. There's, it's clear to me what's good and what's bad. And it was from the very beginning. But my grandmother had a very great, she had a great library. And that's where I got most of my book. My first writer I started with was Balzac. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read, I read mostly French and uh, all those French and Russian people. Uh, I read The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire when I was nine. That's a big, thick volume. But when other people were reading The Hardy Boys, I never looked at those until I got older. And I thought, man, I'm glad I missed that crap. <laughs> it's it's like uh, I, I did read a piece of crap. James Fenimore Cooper, uh, one of his leather stocking or one of the last of the Mohicans. Mm -hmm. Worst writer in American history until lately. But, oh, I mean, the, guy, the guy's, I don't think he... he he writes in crayons or something. I don't know, but mm -hmm. just not a good writer. <laughs> so to tell you this, uh, Les, um, good writing is good thinking is, is an aphorism that gets passed along quite frequently. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, I, I, that sounds accurate to me. Most of these short sayings I don't buy into. I call them bumper stickers for writers. Yeah. It's like, uh, write what you know is a piece of crap. <laughs> but it fits on a bumper sticker and it sounds pithy, but it's not. If you wrote what you know, unless you murder somebody, don't write a murder mystery because you don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're going to write a story set in a distant past or distant future, don't write it because you haven't been there. Uh, the best, the accurate saying is write what you can convince the reader you know. Mm. But it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. It's not pithy. Show, don't tell. That's a piece of crap. If you don't tell in, in, in a novel, then what you've written is a screenplay. You haven't written a novel. There are places for exposition and telling in a good mm -hmm. novel. But they, they have these, these bumper stickers, and most of them are parroting things somebody told them. They haven't really thought about it. They just, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, I'm going to tell my students that now. Yeah, and you know, those shortcuts are the curse of the internet, right? Because I think they sell, they sell, they sell hope. And I think people that peddle hope are the worst kind of people we have because amen brother yeah because <laughs> i think yes i mean there are people who fall into various circumstances uh, you're no stranger to those phases of life but i genuinely feel people who profit here on selling hope to people who can't find it are yep. really a scourge of our species and it's a, it's a quite a species on the face of it by itself but i genuinely have a problem with them so here's what i want to ask you right Sticking with the cliche idea, some good writers, some self-avowedly and some recognize otherwise, can speak of themselves as mediums or vessels of the muse, people who are just transcribing the thoughts that come to their mind's eye. Is this ever, has this ever been your experience? And do you have a point uh, of view on that? Yeah. And I, to me personally, I think it's a lot of horseshit. Okay. I, and I, I don't believe in in a lot of things. I don't believe in sci-fi. I don't like sci-fi unless it makes sense. Most of it doesn't. Uh, it's like vampires. I cannot believe in vampires because I don't think they exist or ever did exist. Mm -hmm. I can't believe in zombies for the same reason. So why would I waste my time and read a story about I just don't get it. But uh, yeah, I, no, there's no, God's not, I think he's a little too busy to be transmitting novels to people. <laughs> I think he, hopefully he's got more important things to do. Yeah, yeah. 
No, but I also wonder from the idea of, you know, the aha moments and this muse. Some people like neuroscientists today will tell you it's more right-brained activity coming from the subconscious versus yeah. the conscious mind sculpting stuff. But is that just from reading a lot of good things and then your mind just processing elements in the background? I think exactly that's the case. I really right. do. In fact, I think the only way you, you become a writer, you, you, you can be taught is by reading. That's mm -hmm. the best method of writing. I've got an MFA and that and 50 cents gets you a bad cup of coffee. And I went to a good program. I went to Vermont College, which always leads the way in the poets and writers daily. Their, their ratings, they're always in the top five and all that. And it was a bunch of crap. It really was. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they're trying to do is teach people to be literary writers. And Vonnegut said the best thing about literary writers. He said, they're making literature is in danger of disappearing up its own asshole. And it's true. That's why he signed his, his uh, books with an asshole. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you know, uh, for someone who hasn't read the briefing document I sent over, you seem to be going through in the exact flow we had planned. And that's a little... Oh, really? Oh, good. You are. You are. So far, you've done that across... God speaking to me. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's the, you're merely a vessel and either yeah, spoon. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> I send him the royalties. <laughs> So, you know, coming back to the MFA, and this is the part I want to, to actually talk to you about. And this links into what you said earlier, that writing involves luck, like being successful in the traditional sense involves luck as well, which means it's not a journey you want to take on unless you're either in love with the idea or certain of your gift. Any other reason is fundamentally going to crumble. Exactly. I was going to say, you're going to go off the trail pretty quickly. Yeah, or lose your mind, which is, you know, yeah. perhaps more yeah. valuable than going off the trail today. Yep. Um, so what is the point of a creative writing course? Is it, in that case, assuming this is a, this is the situation, is it get published, make money? I'll tell you what the public purpose of ours is, and I'll tell you why it's different. Okay. I taught in a lot of colleges. I taught at UCLA, University of Toledo, Vermont College. I, I taught at a, a Trine University, same, a bunch. I can't even name them all. And they all had the same attitude. Their students aren't students, they're customers. And so they want you to teach what they call the sandwich method of teaching, which mm -hmm. is like give them a piece of bread, which is a piece of praise. Then give them a, a bit of meat. That's criticism. And then put another piece of bread with some more praise around that. Well, that's horse shit. I've got students that are brilliant writers that I couldn't find anything to praise in a year with them. Nothing. I'd have to make it up. And that's what you have to do. And that, nobody trusts a teacher like that. They don't trust these teachers. They're just there to get a credit, basically. They're going to give them some trick formula. That's that's what they're all looking for, some easy formula that makes it easy. There aren't any. Be, be a genius and write like a genius, and that's the trick. If you're not a genius, good luck. Learn, learn some stuff where you can be mediocre and make money, because that's all that's left to you, in my opinion. But anyway, uh, I... I, I I get distracted. I have Alzheimer's, so I get distracted quickly. Oh, please do. That's okay. Please, please <laughs> Just rein me in and pull me back. <laughs> I don't think I'm no. going to manage that less, having known what you're like. <laughs> You've got to read. Yeah. I think a good writer reads probably 10 times more than he or she writes. I try to read three to five novels a week, and I have since I was like seven or eight years old. Jeez. Did you say three to five novels a week? Yeah, oh yeah, I'm a fast reader. When uh, see, I've been around since everything came into existence. I was there before everything. 
that, that yeah. I really feel that's true. It's like Evelyn Wood's feed reading course. I was like in my twenties when that came out, and I I took a did a sample thing. I was reading faster than a graduate, so I thought, no, I don't need this. So, uh, and the the faster you read, the more you retain. That's been uh, that's an observable fact. Oh right, the faster you read, the more you retain. Could you speak a bit Absolutely. more? Absolutely, the slower you read, the less you retain. Why is that? I I don't know. I'm not one of those scientists. But <laughs> that's, been, that's been demonstrably true. Yes, yeah, so here's get, the thing. When right? they have people that are fast readers, they give them retention tests. They always retain more. Okay. Here's what I want to ask you now. We've established that writing, reading well is critical to writing well. If you have to have any shot, I mean, firstly, being a great writer, the fact that anyone has a shot is unlikely at being great without effort. It, well, again, I've got to stop you there. It depends on your definition of greatness. There are people that read very little that can write bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Being a bestseller is not, to me, a gauge of how, how well you write it all. In fact, it's the opposite, I think, in most cases. Okay, then what is? It's kind of like porn, like Justice Marshall said. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, let's we 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 live in a world where there are material goals, there are needs, sure. right? And validation will not buy me bread. You know, a good one-liner sure. is not going to get me a loaf of bread or or a kiss on the cheek from someone I, you know, who depends unless on. Unless you're unless you're Bukowski, <laughs> he kind of prostituted himself for booze and ham sandwich and whatever and then wrote later yeah so that's why i want to ask you right so if I, someone wants to be a writer today and i'm saying okay you know a bestseller is not the way to go because if you're committing to the craft what is the way to go what would you say to someone if you has a spark and is floundering about I tell you there's only one rule in writing and that's mm-hmm. write the book you want to read desperately but nobody's written it so you have to write it to be able to read it that's the mm-hmm. only reason in my opinion to write a book Write the book you want to read. That's. But instead, you know what a lot of people do? They look for what genre is hot, what's selling. Well, that's stupid because by the time they write a book, get it out, get it published, hearing that genre's over. Yeah. That, yeah. It's a fad. It's gone. It doesn't matter. No, write the book you wish somebody had written so you get to read it. Nobody has, so you can't. You're not going to wait around. You're going to write the book and then you get to read it. So. That makes sense to me. I like that. I, 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 uh, I, it's, it, I like it better than Franklin's uh, do something worth reading about or write something, no, do something worth writing about or write something worth reading. I think. Uh, I guarantee yeah. if you write the book you wish somebody had written so you could read, you will write something good. Hmm. If you go on. I don't know who Franklin is. I probably do. I just don't know by just that oh, name. Like Benjamin Franklin. Oh, he said a lot of smart things. Yeah, yeah. And he, and he was diligent. Slept with a lot of ladies. That gets my admiration. Yeah. <laughs> Scores those points. So let's, you know, you in our first conversation, the, the brief introduction we had, you said, let's talk about what makes a good reader. Because without good readers, uh, good writing won't sell. And good yeah. writers will also be in short supply. So could you tell me a bit more on your opinion of what makes a good reader? Also, second part is how can I become a better reader? Okay, uh, I don't know which to pursue first. A good reader is somebody that reads voraciously, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how you can pick up, you know, a, a book a month and read it and, and learn much. I really don't. I, to me, I have to be reading every moment I'm not doing something else. And I read while I'm doing other things. Um, I try to, I always have books around me. If you could look around my very cluttered working room, there are bookshelves everywhere. They're on the floor. I have, I have downstairs, I have bookshelves. I probably have probably 10,000 books easily. And that's, and I quit buying books lately because I get them on Kindle or cheaper and they're easier to read. Mm-hmm. So I have thousands of books on, I've gone through four Kindles now, filled them up basically. Well, you don't fill them up, but worn them out. Yeah. Um, so to be, see, again, I have this half Simers thing. What was the initial part? part oh, yeah. What makes question? a good reader? Um, for someone who says you have that, you're, you're staying on course quite nicely. Reading on more than a surface level, I would say, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking this out loud. Uh, it's like, if you're going to be a writer, you have to learn to read like a writer, not like a reader. Right. Okay. It's like uh, I, I, one of my students, Mary, she's a brilliant writer. It's, I don't know why. The reason she hadn't gotten published is they're not smart enough for her. But she will mm-hmm. be. But anyway, she uh, she sent me a book. She sent me a book. Uh, she, she said I couldn't put it down. And I had to read it all the way through. Well, I got my interest immediately because if you can write a book that a reader can't put down, that's the secret. That's one of the big secrets of good writing. You can put it down, and I, I there are little tricks to that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, not putting, don't end your chapters like they teach you to in PS one hundred and one. Don't <laughs> ever do that. Uh, you know the scene's over, so that's the end of the chapter. Well, mm-hmm. what you've done is created an excuse to put it down. Most people read at night before they go to sleep, and they're reading to get sleepy. So if you give them a chance to get sleepy, you've lost them, and they may not return the next night. If they do, they're not going to have a lot of enthusiasm. There, there are some some tricks to it. Yeah, so we, we talked about, okay, a good reader reads like a writer. So I let's say I read like a reader and my friend reads like a writer. What are we both doing differently? You're reading for to see what's going to happen next. You're not worried about how that writer is achieving that, wanting to know what happened next. Mm-hmm. You have to read, as a writer, you have to say, how is he getting me to want to read further? Hmm. The, re- the casual reader is not thinking that way. Uh, there are some bad r- writers that have good advice. Uh, Lee Child, I-, I think he's pretty much a formula writer. He writes the same book over and over, the uh, Jack Reacher series. Oh, right. But yeah. he, said, he said something very profound, very true. And it's one of the reasons he's commercially successful. He says, I put questions on every single page, story questions on every single page. Mm-hmm. You have to do that. Big ones, little ones, big ones, little ones. And the distance between you when you reveal the answer depends on the importance of the question. Uh, the the more important, the farther the distance. But you should have little questions all along. Why is he doing this? What? Why is this color important? Why? 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 But mainly, why? How is this writer getting me to read the next page? You have to look for that. The reasons for that. What did they do? They manipulate. All good writing is manipulating a reader. The trick is not to show the reader they're being manipulated. Mm. When you show them, then you're you're very awkward, you're very clumsy, and you'll probably be a bestseller. Who knows? <laughs> the standards aren't real high. So a, a, a reader is a consumer, and a writer is both observer and consumer. But when I'm Absolutely. reading, can I do both simultaneously? Sure. 
you should, if it's good writing, you should be entertained. Mm-hmm. You don't that's have to the force first it. Rule. Yeah. That's the first rule. Um, it, if you restate the question a couple of times, I'll, I'll keep coming out with bits and pieces. You got to drag it out of me. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite good at that. I'm the woodpecker. Yeah, you are. You're a great interviewer, by the way. You're very kind, Les. If, no, if you you start. I, I think I see it as a conversation and that kind of helps, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you talked about, okay, a good reader, a good writer, and um, entertainment is fundamental to good creative writing. Right? I think that's the aim. That should be the aim. It should be the fundamental aim. So I want to take a step back now. So now, you know, there's the, I was talking to a person I'm staying with just now, and he said I'm, he's a golf professional, a coach. He used to be a golf pro okay. as well. And he was sure. saying that it annoys me that people say those who can't do teach. He said, it's not that. He says, those who know too much teach because they can also find it difficult to be entirely in the moment because they're seeing all the techniques that go into every single move. I've got a great answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, I've had students say that, well, if I, if I get into this too much knowledge and shit, I won't enjoy it anymore. I said, okay, let me ask you this. And are you a basketball fan or a football fan or whatever? And so they say, yeah, I'm a basketball fan. I said, okay, do you know what man-to-man -man defense is as opposed to zone defense? Oh, yeah, that's the, the – I said, okay, do you – and I'll ask them other questions like that. And I said, okay, you know all this about basketball. Does that ruin your enjoyment? They said, no, it makes it better. I said, aha, look at that. Well, you just answered your own question. It yeah. makes it better. Once you know somebody's doing something well and why they're doing it well, your enjoyment has to go up. Mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're not doing it well – and your enjoyment goes down, and you know that's a bad writer. And would that apply to, I, I see how that would increase my appreciation of writing and consuming writing, but would that ever get to a point where as I'm writing, um, I start judging what I'm writing? I become Oh, absolutely. absolutely. At one point, it's conscious, eventually it becomes subconscious. Right. But it has to go through that phase first. Yeah, I'm conscious of doing this. After a while, it becomes second nature. You don't think about it. And that's, that's only through deliberate practice. Is that just that's a deliberate just, practice? No, no that's just the natural stages of learning. Okay. And applying. Right. When, when, if you're learning the, the game of basketball, you want to be a coach and you're in coaching 101 and, mm -hmm. and you don't know anything about it and they teach you the difference between man-to-man -man defense and a 3-2 and a 2-3 zone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're thinking about, I got to look at this and look at this and I, I'm missing the game. No, you're not. You're mm -hmm. learning to really appreciate the game. Mm -hmm. And it's going to mean even more to you. Uh, what's your game? Soccer, football? Uh, snooker, squash, cricket, and badminton. I understand soccer and football. I know nothing about any of those. <laughs> but the analogies work, so I, I comprehend yeah. the rest yeah. of it. As well. yeah, a game is a sport. game. Writing is a game. Right. There are rules. Mm -hmm. they, they may be unseen and unspoken, but there are rules at work, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't get the win. Yeah. And this is the point, right? Uh, you know, even with, with modern art, people realize that Picasso painted incredible portraits before he decided to you know, paint modern art. And I've seen this across art forms. I've The last couple of years, I spent learning how to play cricket, uh, learning music uh, from electronic music producers, basically putting myself in positions where I'm speaking with exponents of their craft and finding themes, you know? I, I had one of my teachers... And I had some good teachers at Vermont. It's just what they were teaching is bullshit. It was the, the uh, 
sandwich method, basically. Right, right. And their 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 aim is is different than mine. But anyway, I had one Phyllis Barber. She's a musician, a great musician. Mm-hmm. And she used music to teach me writing, and it was hugely valuable. And I still use it. And don't ask me to articulate because I have to think about it right now, and <laughs> I don't want to do that. It's going yeah. to be too hard for me to just stop and start thinking about it. But music is a great analogy. It's the same as writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, th- I think, you know, just the act of sticking with something, deliberate practice, and if you won't be a, you might not be a great writer, which I honestly think being a great writer is a status play. Being a better writer is a passion play. Mm-hmm. Because as long as I'm better than I am today, isn't that technically okay? Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Isn't that technically Absolutely. okay? Yeah, and then you leave the results to uh, it. Th- and you know what's even more valuable is knowing why you're a better writer. Hmm. Right. Not that, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm a better writer. Now, why are you a better writer today than you were yesterday? Maybe it's because I learned how this works. Mm-hmm. I learned how to do this, so that makes me a better writer. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the ideas of being alternative or being different is to understand the rules of what you're doing. You've talked about how writing has rules. Writing is a game. I think Annie Lamott talks about how Thoreau likes certain writers. A lot of great writers know the writers they appreciate. But you ask the 21-year-old poet who he likes, and he says, no one really, just my own work, because they haven't understood the rules yet. Yeah. Right? And you have to understand the rules to break them. And, And that's the fundamental idea. Exactly. I, I just had a thought and I lost it. Now I'm going to try to get it back eventually here. Um, but it was, I thought it was important. Um, wow. That's all right. Go ahead. Well, that's fine. The next time you have an important thought and I'm speaking, just please just jump in. No, this, is, this is your stage. Um, so let's, we've, you know, I honestly think, I mean, your memoir, Adrenaline Junkie, is, is fascinating. And on many levels, I don't know if you've been called this. I th- in my This is my hypothesis, and it's fundamentally baseless. But I think an adrenaline junkie is an idealist who's fundamentally aware of their mind as a realist. So we chase yeah. the fantasy in reality. I think it's... I would agree with that. Yeah, an idealist and a realist in the same mind. Because in, in your case, the observer is so aware that what's happening is absurd, but you can't help doing it. Yep. It's like Graham Greene said, every every good writer has a piece of ice in their heart hmm. or something to that effect. And I had a brilliant interviewer, uh, and I'm having trouble remembering his name, not an English writer. Uh, he, he, did, um, he did a series of interviews with people. Best interview I've ever done, and I try to show it to everybody that I can. But uh, he he was, you're much like him. And I can't think of the guy. I can see him in my mind. I just can't think of his name. Uh, I'll think of it in a minute because I think he's, our interview is very important. He did a series of interviews, uh, mm-hmm. something at the slaughterhouse. Okay. You know, I'm terrible. I'm, I forget names all the time. I, uh, I guess I'm not drinking memory stuff anymore. I don't drink anymore, so it hurts my memory. It <laughs> gets in the way. It gets in the way of retention. Yeah. Um, I, was it Richard Godwin? Yes. Yeah? Rich, you know Richard? No, I, I, I know Google. <laughs> oh, okay. You see, I can't get on her while I'm doing this. because I. Oh, no, that's, that, that's, that's my job, so please. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, Richard yes. Godwin. Mm-hmm. He, he did uh, something at the slaughterhouse. I forget what they were even called. They were... It went on for years, 
And I did one with him. It's the best single interview I've ever, ever, ever done or ever will do. Oh, right. And, okay. Uh, I did a couple with him. This one was really good. He always brings up the the uh, Graham Graham Green thing. Mm-hmm. He's a big fan. Okay, I'm going to definitely look this up. But so, yeah, they're they're online someplace. Oh, they are. They are. I'm going to put. I, I actually found them, so I'm going to put that uh, link in the show notes as well. Okay, so. this is a very lengthy one we did, and it was I thought the best work I've ever done in an interview. But he just like you, he drew it up, and he asked intelligent questions. He didn't ask. You write in the morning or night, or do you use a typewriter? Or <laughs> Stupid shit like that. It don't, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah, mean yeah. anything to anybody yeah. as far as writing. But you know, I think that's the, that's the that's the issue with. Uh, I digress this time, so you'll have to excuse me. But with anything that tells you to do something you can't, and when the person who can't tells you you can, he has to throw you a smokescreen. And I think they do that by confusing causation with correlation. If I yeah happen to do a couple of things well and I wake up in the morning and touch myself, then there's a bunch of people just touching themselves hoping they get good at it. So, yeah. you know, I think that's just... Now, you're not talking about masturbation. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I, I, okay. <laughs> I probably leave the room. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm no, fine. It's fine. It's a podcast anyway, so I think we'll be okay. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, we've said, okay, now... We've covered a bit of ground. We've said that uh, writing is on one hand innate, but you can get a bit better. And the point of writing is perhaps is not to accrue fame. If it is, you're more a trickster and tactician than you are a passionate writer. There's a chance you might not be, but there's every chance, a greater chance that you are. So creative writing courses can be good, can be bad. A lot of them are shit sandwich courses, and that's a problem. So what is the point of me going to a creative writing course, what is the mindset I should have as a student? Okay. If you to get go to our class, you should have the same goal that we have. And I have but one goal as a teacher in our class, to get all of our students published and published well. Mm -hmm. That's it. And by published well, I mean no independent publishers, no vanity press, no reputable publishers. That's our goal. And we've been very successful with that. Incredible. So a good goal to summarize for people of a good creative writer who wants to be a good creative writer is to get published and get published well. And that's... Yeah, not just published because that's meaningless today. Anybody publishing their own crap and get mm -hmm. their, you know, three dozen relatives and friends to buy a copy, that's not publishing. I, okay. I Like... Uh, what's called said about Kerouac? He said that's not writing, that's typing, that's mm -hmm. not publishing. I don't know what that is. It's marketing. It's satisfying an ego, I guess. I don't know. It is, it, and there's a huge market for that. And fair play to people yeah, who exploit absolutely. it. You know, mm -hmm. I think insecurity is one of the most valuable tools available to marketers, and uh, they choose to exploit it. And people have not. We we don't teach our children to be patient anymore. Nope. We don't. We teach you to look for formulas, to look for easy ways to obtain things, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, that, that's why people are going to school. School, college used to be a place where you taught students to think. Anymore mm -hmm. now, to, to teach them to get a job. Yeah, and it's yeah. sad. European, from what I understand, European universities are much more like the old standards. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So that they do teach people to think. It's showing in, in everything in our in our societies today that people are not being taught to think. I think so. I mean, you know, it is evident in the fast food consciousness people have, where I think there's a lot more short-term gratification, which honestly is just not good for mental health as well. But that's, I I, I hope to have many more conversations with you, and perhaps that's a topic for that one. Now, Les, I want to do something odd with you, right? We've talked about the shit writers, and we've talked about the great writers, but here's the one I'm very interested in. I always thought if I had the gumption or the dedication to write a memoir, it would be called Strictly Average. because there's I'm sorry, it'd be called what? Strictly Average. Okay. Because I, I've just found that I'm, I'm not really, I don't suck at many things. I'm not exceptional at many things. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm very curious about what we do there. So you get a student. Here's, I'm painting a little picture, right? You get a student. This person's all right. Not fantastic, but not garbage either, right? What are some of the things you take them uh, you do with them to move them from not too shabby to interesting? Well, a large part of what we do in our class is we, we point out the uh, red flags that keep people from getting published. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I'll give you, I can give you a bunch of examples. One is writing rules change. Anything that's a living, mutating organism, which writing is, is going to change. The rules change. That's why I don't recommend a lot of books, craft books, because the rules have changed. A very good example is 100, 200, 200 years ago, people had leisure time. They would come home from work. They would read a newspaper. They would read a book. Today, television and movies have changed all of that completely forever. Okay? Today's, that's why the beginnings of novels have changed more than anything mm-hmm. from, from what they were 100, 200, especially 200 years ago and farther back. People, whether they do or not, they don't perceive they have any leisure time. They need to get things done quickly. So today's novel is about one thing only, and that's trouble. That's all they're about. And I don't care what novel, if it's a good novel, it's always about one thing only, and that's trouble in a protagonist's life that they're trying to overcome. Okay, today's novel, that's why you never begin with setup or backstory nowadays, because it's too long to get there. You don't want to waste. 15 pages, you don't want to waste 15 sentences. You want to get immediately to where the trouble begins. And that's what we call the inciting incident. Something has to create that trouble. And that's where it begins. That's where stories have to begin. That's why in our class, we have a thing where students can, they, new students with a new book can contri- contribute each week the first four pages and an outline, a brief outline. It's it's uh, five statements of 15 to 20, 25 words. That's it. Mm-hmm. But it tells the inciting incident, describes that. It's the first statement. The next three statements are the, the three major turning points of a novel. And all novels will boil down to, to about three major turning points. And the last statement is the uh, resolution. That's it. If I see that on a page, I know the student has thought about this book more than a week or so. It's not just some idea that came to him. In fact, uh, Blake Snyder wrote the uh, series of books. Let's see if I can find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cat, whatever, The Cat, uh, whatever. You can probably look it up. Mm-hmm. Blake Snyder, he's dead now. But anyway, um, he, where was I going with him? You're talking about the inciting oh. incident the structure. Yeah. What a lot of people start a novel with nowadays is what he called – 
the uh, the smell of the road, the rain on the road at dawn, and that's that's they have this vision of a scene or something. That's they they want to start an entire three hundred fifty page novel based on that. Well, he mm-hmm. said that's not a novel. That's not a novel idea, and it's not. He said that's a T shirt you wear in a Letterman show after you've written a novel, <laughs> and you talk about how you got the inspiration, but you're not going to write a novel based on that kind of thing. Right. That's what the vast majority of writers come to a project with that that little that emotional little scene in your head yeah. won't carry through. You'll peter out around page sixty. Seen it happen a million times. So we mm-hmm. insist on, a, on an outline that shows that you've given thought to this. For my own self, I'm I'm writing three novels now, and I usually am writing about three or four novels at a time. Okay, okay. I, I'm a victim of I'm not a victim. I'm a benefactor's of ADD, which means I can compartmentalize and I can focus very well on a thing for short periods. So I have files. When I get tired of one, I pull, I close it down, pull up another one, and I don't, don't waste any time. Nice. Anyway, um, see, I'm, I'm off the rails already. No, you're here. not. You talked about Blake Snyder saved the cat and said that people drop off on page 60 usually. And yeah, in your case, you had three hey, projects on the go. I guarantee you, you talk to anybody who's been trying to write a novel for say 10 years, they got six of these in a drawer that ended between page 60 and page 80. They did not think it through. Now, oh, I know what I was going to say. I'm I'm writing three novels now. Every time I begin a novel, it's percolated in my head for at least 10 years. Hmm. At least. I thought about it and thought about it. I thought, taking it through all kinds of permutations and everything. But that's, for me, that's the litmus test. I can write a short story on short notice, but a novel is a longer labor. It's a whole different animal. A novel is not a longer short story. It's a whole different thing. So any, I have to think about it. It has to become very real to me before I can sit down and write it. And when I do, it's effortless because I've thought about it so much. I know this story. I'm just putting it on paper now. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what, yeah. What's your early writer? Are you okay for time? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Okay. I was going to say, when an early writer comes on, right? Let's say in my case, I haven't actually done much writing in that space. Would you? Have you done reading? I have done some reading. Then, but, you've, then you've done writing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've, like I said, I've written extensively in other areas, but the question I had for you was novel or short story? How does, a, how does an early writer decide what they should do first? Today, the market kind of determines that for you. There's no money in short stories. Mm-hmm. Raymond Carver is one of our best writers. He never wrote a novel because he, he was in his 40s and 50s. He said, I don't have time to write one. Mm-hmm. Well, he did. He just didn't realize he did. But he wrote brilliant short stories. He's probably the only guy that's ever made a living from short stories. And he needed to make a living from it. He had to teach to actually make money. There is no money in short stories. There's no money in poetry. You're going to write those. You're writing for an audience of five people. All right. And you're never going to make money. You might as well figure on that. You're never going to make money. The only way to make money in writing today, there's three three things you can write. A novel, a movie, and the most lucrative form of all, which is also the shortest. Mm-hmm. Kidnap notes. <laughs> Very lucrative. And you don't even have to have grammar check or spelling or any of that. Kidnap notes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to avoid indictment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
I, I want to circle back now. We've 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 got I've got so much out of you, and and um, yeah, I, I I came in sort of prepared for it. So, what can a good craft book do for a writer? We've talked about how rules change, how rules don't change. What can a good craft book do for a writer? I I recommend three. Yeah. One of them is Mind Hooked. Another is Jack Bickham's Scene and Structure. And the third is Janet Burroughs' On Writing Fiction. Janet Burroughs is the best book ever written, in my opinion, on fiction. Mm-hmm. It's it's very dense. It's it's but it's it all makes sense. It all makes common sense. Mine, the big biggest reason most writers don't get published nowadays is they don't understand story structure, contemporary story structure. Mine takes care of that, and Jack Bickham's does the same. Because there are two basic units in mm-hmm. uh, fiction in a novel: a scene and and uh, what I what's the other structure. part of it? Structure, which is exposition, basically. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't show tell is bullshit. You have to tell it's in some parts of a novel. So I want, to small, I want to take a small detour, right now, just to stick with the first part you said. Like these are the three you recommend, and now there are other craft books. Where sp- I wouldn't say they're spoiled for choice, but there's Stephen King's on writing, uh, Bird oh, by no, Bird. No. Let me Tom- let me do that. Okay, Stephen King. I won't read his stuff because I think it's full of crap. I think he's a fiction for it. I think he's got some talent, some surface talent, but his book on writing is just a compilation of other people's advice. That's all mm. it is. Same way with Elmer Leonard, who I think was a much better writer. All he did was take other people's things that he used. It's like. Uh, the one, uh, um, oh God, I'm trying to think of it. He, he stole this. He, he didn't attribute the guy to the right guy. Mm-hmm. It was a Harry Cruz saying that he. Oh man, I wish I could think. I'll, I'll think of it. But is that an is that an integrity issue or is that a content issue? Let's assume for a second that you gave me great advice that wasn't yours. Technically, right. I've still gotten great advice. Yeah, you have. The thing is. As a writer, you want to be, you want your stuff attributed to you, not to somebody else that yeah, happened to yeah. have a bigger audience. Which I think and is a fair issue. I, think, I don't yeah. think Stephen King was a mean person or an mm-hmm. evil or anything like that. But I think he just didn't, I, in fact, he probably even said in his book that, yeah, I took these from other writers, but they don't see it that way. They said, Stephen King, this is why he's, he's great because he invented these rules, didn't invent any of them, observed them. Other people invented it. That's my quarrel with him. Okay. So it's okay. It, but what about the advice itself, though? The advice, most part, is good, except there's a lot of what I call bumper sticker advice in those things. Understood. A lot of advice is that's dated now. It doesn't not work now. Okay. Um, it's like um, it's like there are two basic forms of writing. There are minimalists and there are lush writers. Mm-hmm. Lush writers are like South American writers, like uh, uh, oh god, who's uh, Mario uh, Vargas uh, Yosa, mm-hmm. the the screenwriter, and Aunt Julian, the screenwriter. Yeah, I wrote a paper in college that was twenty five pages long, based on three paragraphs paragraphs of his writing. Now it's bullshit, but it made sense. But it, it still is bullshit. <laughs> I should not have been able to get that much out, but that's it. Was mostly illustrates the difference between minimalism, which is what Americans write today, which is what is accepted, and the mm-hmm. lush kind of writing a South American uses. 
or a Latinx poet uses. Right. I don't know your background nationally, which is. I'm uh, Indian by origin. Okay. Probably from my very limited knowledge of Indian writing, it's probably a lush style. Would that be wrong? I'd say I'd say so. Uh, I think now that because such a vast country with so many writers, yeah. but I think descriptive, yeah, lush is probably what we would. A lot of the writing would be based on that I've read. Yes, sure. descriptive scene. A lot of about the setting. It's not uh, cut yeah. to the chase. No, it's not. Sure, it's it's like poetry almost. Am I wrong? No, no, I don't think so. I think it, okay. it, it is poetic. Uh, and that, right, and poetry. that works for an Indian reader. With an emotional it probably people's wouldn't story. work as well for an American reader. Right. Yes. And that's why we have different sensibilities based by our cultures, by what we've experienced over the years in our writing. Which brings me to the, a point where how important is it for a writer to know who they are writing for? Personally, I would go back to my original advice to write the book you, you want, want to, to read. Have read. Yeah. So you're writing for you. You're yeah. writing for somebody just like you. Uh, oh, God, what's his name? Up, uh, John Upton, or John, mm -hmm. he said it best. He said, I write, in my mind, when I write a novel, I write for a 10 or 11-year-old boy in Kansas in the stacks of a library, seated there reading a book. That's my audience. <laughs> he writes for somebody like himself. He knows that they're, he, and I tell my students all the time, you may not ever meet your writers unless you get good enough. You get readings and signings because your writers, your readers are probably set, some librarian in Norfolk, Virginia. They're probably somebody in Nebraska, somebody in Hawaii that you'll never meet. But the, one of the mistakes that a lot of writers make is they write for the people around them. They write mm -hmm. for their wives or husbands. They write for their relatives. They write for their friends. They write for their people on a job. Those are not your readers. Most of those people, I dare say, don't even read or don't read the things you write. Yeah. They're not, but that's Most who people end up writing for. That's who they what, think they want to impress. You're not going to. Mm -hmm. By and large, they're not, they're just not your readers. Your readers are invisible people too. They're people just like you. So if you write the book you wish somebody else had written, and you, you, you'll reach those readers if you get yeah, you distributed do. well. That's Tim Urban, Tim Urban is one of the more successful online writers today. Uh, I, I'm I'll sorry, who? His name is Tim Urban. He's not a fiction writer. He writes okay. a lot of nonfiction. I'll send you some of the stuff he's written. I'd be, I'd be curious to see what you think. Sure. But uh, that's a separate point. He says he breaks all the rules of being popular digitally. Uh, he Good. publishes infrequently. He writes long essays. And he writes indiscriminately about just things he's curious about. Whereas a lot sure. of the advice in digital marketing in some is, place, there's a guy like him named you. Yeah. That enjoys yeah. this stuff. You, yeah. You never met him, have you? No, I haven't met him. You're not in the same town. You're not in the same town. You don't belong no. to the same. That's, no. that's who your readers are. Just like his reader is you. Your reader is somebody like you someplace else you'll never meet. That's what he says. He says, when I write, I think about I'm writing to a stadium full of people just like me. Remember the story I told you about? The agent told me, publishers see my book as a YA with a 12-year-old protagonist. And that was yep. a kiss. Yep. Well, in those days, you could not write YAs for boys. Nobody would publish them because they don't read. 
Mm-hmm. However, there's a person called Rawlings that disregarded that. She said, she said, uh, Mary Evans also said, boys won't read a book over, over 90 pages. Mm-hmm. Well, she wrote books that were way longer than that and everything. And it was very successful because she did not listen to anybody. She yeah. wrote for a person like herself and she was successful. That's a, that, that's how writers should approach this stuff. Look at what works. Yeah. You know, if she'd listen to the common wisdom, the world would have never got any of those books. That's true. That's true. I also feel that, and I, I digress once again, I have an interest in how people think. I feel that now culture has us in a weird cocktail of narcissism and selflessness, where if you think you have to think about yourself because you've got bought a camera and your phone and you're hoping people look at you, at the same time, you won't celebrate yourself because people might think you're a charlatan who's self-obsessed. So you're stuck as this narcissist martyr who's consistently confused between being confident and not being confident. And then that leaks into your thinking, you know? Okay, let me ask you this, Adarsh. Who allows that? Who, who, who allows that? That kind of thought. Don't you? Yeah. Well, then don't. That's yeah. easy. Yeah. Then don't. Just don't. <laughs> it's a boundary yeah. choice. It's that easy. No, that's true. Okay, so... Um, Here's the thing, right? You told me what the best craft book was. We talked, so I, and I, one of the things that have come from that is a great craft book tells you how and tells you that with integrity, whereas an okay craft book tells you what and perhaps not with as much integrity. And they don't give you the why, why you do this. Okay, the why, yes, the reason. Except that somebody else did it and they were successful. Hmm. Again, it's kind of yeah. a weak reason. It is. It's intelligence and hindsight. Thank God J.K. Right? Rowling didn't read those kind of books, I don't think. <laughs> what do you think of Harry Potter as a book? I'm not a fan, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's good writing because anybody that can affect 10, 11, 12-year-old boys has got to be a freaking genius. That's true. Nobody did it before. That's true. And nobody did it the way she did it. Yeah. Nobody wrote three, four hundred page books. I don't even know how long. I know they're long. Yeah. Nobody wrote that and expected boys to read them and buy them. This is she true. did. I want to get to the business end of this uh, this particular segment. Frequently, we're talking about you know the full time writer who doesn't, who's not certain of being published. That is a dwindling breed in a lot of ways. I mean, there are the sure. ones who want to try and make it, but some a lot of them can't. So someone who has a busy schedule, who has something else to do, who has a family or work, how can they start to build writing skills? I don't know. I did all that. <laughs> I was writing when I was going to college full time. I also yeah. owned a business full time. I also worked two part time jobs, one at the South Bend Tribune as a sports writer. And uh, I figure, oh, I forget what the I sold something. I forget now. But I, I literally slept four hours a night, but I found time to write. If mm-hmm. you are going to be a writer and you want to be a writer, don't, don't ever give me those excuses. They don't work. How much do you watch television? You watch one show a day? There's time to write right there. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I hear that. There, there used to be an ad on, on the radio about this girl said, oh, I've got it so hard, basically, is what she was saying. I have to go clear across campus for my classes, and I have to do this, and I do that. And I said, Oh, and I was also married and had a, had a child. And my wife didn't work. 
Okay, that was my life in college, but that's been my life all my life. I've always worked 12, 14 hour days wherever I've worked, mm-hmm. but I went home and found time to write before I went to work or after or both, or while I was at work. If I had downtime, I was writing. So that's not an excuse to me, and I don't buy it with from anybody. You yeah. cannot show me a person does not have time to write if they want to write. That's, that's not true. an excuse. I think just uh, why. Yeah, I don't have time as frequently means I, I know, don't, but you I don't, do. I don't, I don't. I don't want it to. I bet you a dollar you do. Oh no, I do. I'm saying that. But when people say I don't have time, they frequently mean I don't want it enough. I want it for exactly. some other reasons. It's you know. Perfect. You're exactly right, man. Yeah. Exactly right. So now you know we're going to do something unusual. As we're talking to someone who coaches writers to get published, we're talking in, a, in an environment which values short-term gratification. So I'm going to ask you a bizarre question. Let's say I start writing for the love of writing and you uh, Les Edgerton have been given the gift of telling the future and you've established that I'm a failed writer not a bad writer I'm a commercially unsuccessful writer it's done no matter what I write it's going to happen but I will continue writing in mm-hmm. that premise what separates the satisfied writer from the uncertain dabbler mm. Man, I don't know. That I think that's got to be an individual thing. I don't know what satisfies. I know what satisfies me. Mm-hmm. If I wrote, if I write something that's good, I'm satisfied. Yeah, I'm going to try to get it out there, but I know that's an uphill battle. I yeah. know it's an uphill battle, but I don't care because I know what I've written is good. Mm-hmm. Either know it or you don't. If you're, that's not entirely true. Even if you're very gifted and all, it's, you can still have doubts. Yeah. Hemingway had doubts. I don't know why, but he did. And there are people that say, yeah, you should have a lot of doubts. There's another side to that, too. Yeah. And how does someone uh, overcome that? In in your students or in yourself? Have you ever had doubts about writing? And how have you overcome them? I I can't remember having doubts. Mm -hmm. I have doubts about, because I know know who's judging it. I know where publishers come. Let me give an example. You know where publishers come from, from the big five and all of them? Mm Mm-hmm. They're young women from wealthy families that were sent to East Coast colleges. Right. I guarantee you 80% of all editors, that's their background. And what happens if you come from a wealthy family in, Bryn, in Philadelphia, you send your son and daughter, you send your daughter to Bryn Mawr or Vassar or wherever, you send your son to Harvard, Yale, wherever, okay? When your son graduates, he better get a job on Wall Street. And he yeah. knows that and expects that, and he does. The daughter's something else. They're delicate. They subs- the fathers subsidize their jobs. They get jobs as interns in publishing companies. It's RD. It's, you know, it's a valued thing, kind of, and all this shit. The most of these girls is primarily women. They don't subsidize their sons, as a rule. Sons better get out and make some freaking money. All right? So that's your talent pool you're drawing from for publishing, yeah. by and large. If you think I'm wrong, go check it out. Anyway, what happens is these the, the, the publishers hire these girls because they're cheap. They don't have to pay them much. Mm-hmm. They don't. And, but they do like banks do. They give them a big title and no money. You're an assistant to the assistant to the assistant slash file manager, whatever. Right. So they get a title. And their daddy's sending them you know, a check every week or every month or whatever. And they, they're paying their rent and they're doing all this shit. They're not doing that for the boys. Boys better get out and kick ass and become a man. Girls are not required to do that. 
So what happens is the way publishers, and these girls have no experience in literature for the most part. Most of them have written a handful of books if they read it all. Mm-hmm. They think they're literary because they took a couple classes on, I don't know, Poe or something. I don't know. Havelock. <laughs> okay, but they're not. They haven't written much at all, most of them. If they have, it's mostly garbage. They don't have any acumen for what's good and what's bad. So what they do is, what they used to do, and I think they still do this, they set them loose in the slush pile. It's a huge room someplace in the publisher's room. All these unsolicited manuscripts come in. The girls are allowed to go on their own time after work, take it home and read manuscripts. If they find one they think is publishable, they take it to their boss, who's a junior editor or something. If that person thinks it's good, they'll, they'll champion it someplace else. That's how they get promoted into becoming an assistant editor. Right. That's the history of publishing. I promise you it is. Now, it, you want those people judging your work? Well, you have no choice. That's who judges it. Mm. It's better than the independence and the, the vanity press, but it's still not very good. But that's who's judging you. So if you're buying what they're saying, you're a fool. Mm. Or you don't know how it works. That's how it works. Eventually, the ones that pick out enough winners get promoted and get promoted, and they they become the lions of the industry or whatever. It used to be a lot of men. Mm -hmm. Now it's mostly women. And that's where it came from. These are all people who went to Vassar, Mm -hmm. were in sorority. They Silly little girls, really. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The women are going to shit and call me everything in the world, but that's the truth. And what's your take? You know, in indie publishers, some some indie writers will talk about how it gives them authenticity of voice. Now you can self-publish to Kindle, and they say that's it. It gives me a chance to just get my voice out there anyway. What out is there the issue? There? Wait, wait. Let me interrupt you. Out there meaning what? Yeah. <laughs> what kind of promotion are they doing? What kind of distribution? Can they get your book any place other than Amazon? Can they walk into Barnes and Noble get it? No, no, because you have to go through a, a, a what used to be the top five, now it's top four publishers, the big mm-hmm. four. That's the only people getting into Barnes and Noble, and that's where you make money. That's where I got fooled by two different publishers. Said, "Oh yeah, we'll get you in." They had the means, but they didn't do it because they didn't want to invest the money. When you go through a distributor like Ingram or something. You have to pay for the shipping back of the ones they don't sell. And, and these independents won't do that. They can't do it. They don't have the money. Right. But I had two tell me, oh, yeah, we're, we're with Ingram now. They weren't. Mm-hmm. They, they, if they wanted to pay the fee, shipping back fee, yeah, but none of them were willing or able to do it. So yeah. I got fooled by two of them. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. That's a valuable goal. So writers should yeah, read it's, more. It's, it's hard yeah. fought, but hard won. But. Yeah, it's valuable information. I think so. I, I really think so. So that's you know um, the attention span, as we talked about, about these listeners can can dwindle and, and wane and wax. And I'm hoping this interview has given us a chance or a potential incentive to have other conversations. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about this podcast itself. Um, you were going to say something. Sure. I think you're doing a wonderful job. I wish you would do, you know. Other than podcasts, you do the film version of it, too. I don't know if you thought of that. What does that mean? I think there's more value if you do it that way. Oh, the video as well? Yes. Okay. I think people like to see a face. and They like they, they, they can look at a face. It's like this mask thing with this COVID crap is mm-hmm. bad because 
I, I just watched a video of a girl, teenage girl, a junior in high school, and her school took a mask off. She'd sat next to this girl for three months and said, "This is, I didn't know what you looked like. Right. Vision is important to people, to see other people. It really is. I think so. You know, I've had a few people tell say this to me that I should consider. I, I don't know if on. it's a matter of cost or what. I I don't know. What oh that no, it's is. not. It's not. It was just a, a, early on. It was a matter of confidence. Uh, now it's no. just become a question of. I know I'm an ugly coot, but there's a value to that. People like to watch <laughs> ugly. They like to watch criminals like me as long as none of it gets on them. Yeah. I think what you've done right now. You're a good looking uh, guy, man. You could. I I guarantee you, I would go with the video. But that's. I don't know anything about the business, so. You, um, I'll tell you what's just happened. I think what you've just done right now is you've made yourself my first ever video episode. <laughs> so. I'm here. My son is a great videographer. I mean, fantastic. He should have went to film school. When he was 12 years old, he and his, his mate, I think he's sixth grade, made a movie called Saving Ryan's Privates. Remember the movie <laughs> Saving Private yeah. Ryan? Yeah. Well, they had a friend named Ryan. They followed him around with the webcam. And every time he talked to a girl, they tackle him. It was, I mean, that's pretty clever for a 12 year old. Like that is pretty clever. That is pretty clever. <laughs> and he, right. he, he makes videos for his company. Now he just makes them. They ended up just paying him 400 a month because he made such great sales videos. Oh, my son would be a great guy, but he's too good to stoop to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. If yeah, someone has know. to stoop to reach my standard, at least it's stoopable. No, <laughs> I, yeah. I tell you, I I give you a tip on Ray. You got? Do you have kids? I don't yet. Not none that I know of. What I do with my son, mm -hmm. I knew right away he was going to be attracted to money, and he is. He's top mm -hmm. sales wherever he's been. He's been top sales guy. But when he was a little boy, five, when he learned to read, I made a list of a hundred books that I considered good writing, and I gave them to him. And there were no kids' version; they were all adult versions. Mm -hmm. I said, every book you read all the way through and give me a one-page book report, I'll give you $5. And he oh. right now reads three to five novels a week, always has. So he's in the same space. He doesn't get the $5 anymore, but he, he understands the value. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I can see that being valuable habit. I can see that because... And I wouldn't let him read these child versions or any of that crap. All right. None of it. I didn't. I was smart enough to understand adult writing, and he was too. Most kids are. Mm. Most teachers don't give kids enough credit. Well, I think so. Even with ADD, it's a conversation I had frequently with psychologists. I was doing a psychology course in the past. And I said, you know, can we stop asking children why they're distracted and start asking teachers why they're boring? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I could tell you something about teachers. I used to be, I went to school to teach and dropped mm -hmm. that degree quickly because of what was happening. Unions were coming in. All the old teachers said, don't get in this. It used to be a profession. Now it's going to become a job. That's right. exactly what happened. That was in yeah. the early 70s. Which is a shame. I mean, I understand market forces, but no one said market forces are useful for human satisfaction. Right, Les, you know, here's the thing, right? You've written a memoir, which I think every single person listening to this read, Adrenaline Junkie. So that gives you a sense. But now you are, um, for lack of a better word, and, and, and geez, what is a better word here? An older man? Is that something we can oh, yeah. use? I'm 78. Yeah. I'll be 79 in a week. Okay. So you're comfortable with that tag, older man? Uh, you kind of have to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I yeah. earned it. Yeah, but there's still a vitality to how you go about your business. And you've had so many, I just think from having read the book, a couple of tweaks here and there, 
We could be looking at an Ivy League Wall Street guy. We could be looking at a, a variety of people. That that's now, totally I was a- run because I learned to read at a very early age, and I read good stuff. I think so. I, I was run for all that stuff. <laughs> this is true. I think I have to talk to you about this separately. Sorry. So anyway, sure. now you have some time on this planet. We all do. You're just further along in your journey than I am. Uh, unless, you know, a truck comes hurtling at me on my way to the wine store where I work now. I'll knock on wood. Knock on wood. But uh, what less is your vision for an ideal life? I think my life has been ideal. I think if you haven't finished Adrenaline Junkie, I did everything I did for, for one reason, for material, for books. Mm-hmm. And so I went to jail. I did all that on purpose for material. And I was very happy with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I had my second or third wife, I forget which, said, you just married me for material, didn't you? And I said, yeah, <laughs> because I did. She's great material. Hmm. Is there a certain sociopathy or psychopathy or uh, appetite for pain associated with being a writer who wants good material? Probably. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, don't know. I, I just know. Yeah. I, I always want more knowledge and I always want to know more. I want to know how the other person feels. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wrote a book called The Rapist. You should read that next. Done. My wife read it. And my wife won't read it. She's scared of my work. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, my God, it was like you crawled into my brain. And I thought, really? That was a reaction I would never have expected from her. <laughs> so would you recommend and The Rapist? The rapist. I have, I've, that's one crime I've never wanted to do, never will do. But I, I want to know. I want to think I could get into somebody's head yeah. and see why and how they think. That's such a fascinating sentence. Uh, outside of this conversation, I can't imagine it being said. That's one crime I never wanted to do. I just It, it just isn't. <laughs> but the implication of all the other crimes we'd be interested in. It's, it's, it's oh, yeah. Murder, I could do that. Maybe have. I, some things you can't say because there's no statute of limitations. Uh, I've done burglaries, hundreds of them, armed robberies theft. I was a pimp. I was an escort for older women. I've done, I was in porn movies. I did a bunch of shit mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it all immensely. Fact, after films. I got Fact out of jail, I, I didn't, after I got out of prison, I didn't quit doing crimes. I just quit getting caught. <laughs> the I'm, to a good one right now. I'm writing a book right now, a novel about a hitman that makes all his hits look like accents and they're all perfect crimes. And I'll mm. end up with about 30 of them and they're crimes you could follow and they'll work. Crimes that work. I, yep. I like how you've gone from writing that might not work to crimes that do. So if someone hasn't been published, you can use this thing to get some money in. I, I wrote a book years ago. It was a sad story that I lost $50,000, my livelihood and everything over it which is a long story, which I won't get into here, but yeah. um, I, uh, about three years after it came out, some people in Pennsylvania did the same job and never been done before. But I didn't include everything in the book. I left out a couple of things. And the, the, the things I left out are the things they screwed up on. Jeez. But yeah, if they had just known my complete plan, yeah, they had gotten away with it. It could have worked. That could have worked. Les, now tell me this, what keeps you, you know, you say you read a lot now, you still write, what keeps you motivated and where do you find the energy to keep going just as a person? Well, you're going to have energy or lack of it, whatever you do. And so I've got energy, so I'm doing what I love to do and that's right. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't know if that answers it or not. It does. I think doing what you love is where the energy comes from. Yeah, I've walked away from jobs, Art Arsh. Uh, I'm sorry I have trouble with your name. I don't mean to be disrespectful. You're not being disrespectful. I think it's a cool name. Does it mean it has a meaning, right? Uh, Yes. I mean, as much as it can in the meaningless world, it means ideal. Wow. They don't give you guys low-level names, do they? No, no, no. (laughs) No. They're all pretty lofty. Yeah. <laughs> well, really, that's cool. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a good start to a life, I would think. I think so. I think it subconsciously plays into a template of how I conduct myself. But but yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, what was I saying? I forgot now. You were talking about doing what you love and how that keeps you motivated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've I've known since I was five years old. This is what I want to do. It's what I did. Mm-hmm. It's what I'll continue to do. I don't. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I've walked away from. I've walked away from actual fortunes. Mm-hmm. I walked away from an insurance job where I was the best in the business. I was right. due to be in the Millionaires Club and all that, and they did something I thought was immoral for mm-hmm. Prudential, and I, I said, "I'm done." My boss said, "If you don't do anything, just stick around for the next three months. You'll get a check every week, and you don't have to even come in the office." I said, "It's immoral. I'm not going to do it." Everybody thinks a criminal is a criminal. We have our own codes. And I have a code and I live by it regardless. So, yeah, money's not my motivator. It just never has been, never will be. How many cars can you drive at a time? How many suits of clothes can you wear? How many beds can you sleep in? Whatever. One of each is fine for me. Yeah, I think so. I really think so. And I got laid a lot. (laughs) I I have over a thousand babes and they're most... All of them are great looking. Yeah, I think that. that and I did with no money. Charlie, Charlie, on uh, two and a half men had to buy his. I never had to buy anything. <laughs> never had to buy anything. Les Edgerton, what is a good day for you? This is a good day. I, I have a huge ego, and you playing right into it. I love it. That's one of the reasons I write ego. Okay. And what's a bad day for you? I'm sorry? What's a bad day for you? When I don't get, when I waste time, when I'm, mm. when I'm not writing or doing something associated with writing. To me, this is associated with writing. Reading is always associated with writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 like, it's like prison. Everybody thinks prison is bad. Well, it's not good. But if you got a book, who cares where you're at? If you're in a cell or if you're out on the mountaintop, who cares? You, you're in a book. You got a book to read. It's not a bad deal. I've said this to so many people before that uh, I've had accusations. So India can be quite a status-driven society, especially if you're in the middle class or upwards of that and across the board. And I've always been asked, I've never had any desire to have a nice car, a nice house. And I've always said, if I have my health, a good conversation, a notebook and a pen, I'm I'm okay. Like everything else is a bonus, you know? That's why we're compatible, whatever, (laughs) simpatico. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I probably leave this conversation a bit more, uh, bit more spunk about the fact that I want to pursue the path of a writer than I did come into it with. So thank you for that. You are, if you put your mind to writing, you're going to be very successful. I, I can see that now. May I be, take a moment of indulgence and ask why? Sure. Because you're obviously engaged with the subject. It's something you want to do. It's very evident in everything you're saying and doing. 
mm-hmm. you're just going to, you're a winner. Whatever you decide to do, you're going to be a winner. At least on the surface. I don't know about internally, but I suspect internally you will be too. Okay. That's about everything you've lived through and the people, the range of people you've met, I'm inclined to trust your intuition. So I'm going to work with the, that being credible. Thank you. Good. I hope you'll take our class as a member. Oh, that's a hundred percent. That wasn't even like a possibility. That's a hundred percent. And yes. and don't we don't accept short stories or poetry, so forget that nonsense. Yeah. Okay. Consider <laughs> considered consider ruled out. I'm I'm gonna independently publish my short stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> so that's last two questions. What is your message to people confused about the paths to take? in their life. If you're confused, I can't help you. Get, just get over it. Don't be confused. If you if you know you want to do something, freaking do it. No matter what it costs. Go all in. Pick something and go all in. Oh, you said it best. An ode to a Grecian urn is worth any number of old ladies. <laughs> and it is. An ode to a Grecian urn is worth any number of old ladies. Nice. Yep. It's a little cryptic, but it's pretty easy to figure out. I'd say so. I mean, if, if someone pays attention, that, you know, that's the yeah. whole idea. Last one, Les. If all you could leave of your life was a telegram, what would it say? Oh, man. Oh, man. I, I need time to think of these. <laughs> I'm just going to give something stupid, I know. Oh, no, um, take your time. It's unlikely it'll be stupid. Well, I probably put the same thing I on one of my gravestone. I told you I was sick. Mm-hmm. I told you I was sick. Exceptional. Les, uh, if people want to reach out to you, uh, get in touch, do you have preferences on how they can do that? Is that your website? Is that your email? Uh, I, my website, my blog, yeah. I, I think all my info is on there. Email is my best way. I don't do good on that uh, message thing, and I don't do good with phone stuff. My fingers are too big, and I I have to correct everything. I can't send out a misspell. So it takes forever for me to keep correcting stuff until I get it right. But I'm not going to send out anything sloppy that's in print ever. That's Mm -hmm. me I'm sending out. So it takes me forever. On a keyboard, I can do it pretty quickly. Well, you know, it's the same thing I do as well. I I tell some of the – I've taught – public relations writing courses in the past. And I had students uh-huh. tell me that I just text all the time. How can I be a better writer? I just said, don't send out a grammatically incorrect text message. Yeah. Let's just start there. Kind of yeah. Look at the, you're always building habits. That's yeah. not a good habit. It's not. It and really that, isn't. And that's you you're sending out. Yeah. Are you on social media? Or do you have someone doing that? For yeah, you? I have two Facebook things. Mm-hmm. I, I have one, just Les Edgerton. And that, that got to, I think their limit's 5,000. They got to that years ago. And a Facebook guy said, you need to start another page called Author. So I've got another one, Les Edgerton Author. But just go to, I think I've got some openings. That some people hated me and dropped me. So there's some openings on the original one. And I'm on uh, Twitter, but I don't use it. It's hooked on Noir. Right. And I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Les Edgerton. Mm-hmm. The best way, though, is just email me. It's butchedgerton at comcast.net, all lowercase. Done. That's what we'll do. So thank you for your time. 
I think this has been and everything we talked about is on my blog. It goes back years and there's yeah. all kinds of topics on there. So done. And that's where I'll send people. Listen, Les, I, I'm desperately hoping that we're going to do this again. And it's just a question. of. I am uh, too, time. man. I love doing this with you. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you for being as open Myself and authentic. Too, and I'm sorry you have to live in Toronto. It must be cold up there. <laughs> it is a bit cold, but no, I'd, I'd love to. Too. I'm looking out at snow right now. We get about a foot. Oh, likewise. Likewise. We've had a snowstorm and it's just stuck. It's stuck See, I grew up in East Texas and New Orleans. Right. And I immigrated to Fort Wayne, Indiana years ago from the U.S. And I'm just trying to learn the customs and the language. But I don't like the food. <laughs> food's terrible. Midwesterners' idea of, of spice racks is salt and pepper shaker. Salt and pepper shaker. Gee, that's, not, that's, that's, that's almost offensive to an Indian. But uh, yeah. yeah. I'm going to end this. Yeah, in New Orleans, I can imagine. I'm going to end this recording now, but we'll, the, the video will continue after. But I'll end the recording now. And any, any closing words for the audience before you go? No, I'll see you in church. And that's <laughs> not necessarily a religious thing. My church is a place called the Gin Mill. It's wherever you give an offering. Done. Done. Thank you so much. Les Edgerton, everyone. Hey there. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Maximum Project. Your life is a collection of days, and as long as you have days that are aligned with your ideal satisfaction, chances are that you will have a satisfying life. This episode, hopefully, gave you a sense of what it takes to be a successful writer, what it takes to devote yourself to the craft of writing, and how you can actually go about building your goals and ambitions for becoming a better writer. Even if you're not a writer or reader, it does give you a sense of how to think and how to approach the idea of thinking. Thanks again for sticking around and coming over to another episode of The Maximum Project. We also have a website, www.themaximumproject.com, Instagram page, The Maximum Project, and a newsletter that I'd love for you to sign up for. I send it out occasionally, but with love every single time. Until I see you next time, be fantastic. Make the most of you. Let's get maximum. Bye, 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 bye. Insights only on TMP. Also, you can make the most of you. Let's get maximum.